This is a Brain Bites episode. Each week, we share two things we learned the past week and how you can implement them in your life. So, let's get into it. Two, one. And welcome back to another episode of Brain Bites. Brain Bites 11, very excited for this one. Joined, as always, by Kieran. How are you doing, my friend? Mate, I'm I'm so good. I'm chirpy as. Why How are, are you chirpy as? Well, What's going on? Well, mate, because I get to find out what you learnt for the week. Ooh, nice little setup. <laughs> Lobs. <laughs> Tell me. I'm all ears. Crazy fact. Researchers suspect the color blue didn't exist in human memory until the Egyptians. Oh, God. Why are you breaking my brain? Like, I wanted to learn. I didn't want my brain to be broken. You have to elaborate on this one. The community is shocked. (laughs) I mean, people are reeling. Get the journalists out. Someone has to tell the press. This is big news. The idea is that humans didn't actually have a concept for blue. And as a result, we didn't have a way of seeing it. So it didn't exist. We know this because if you look back at some of the research from primitive texts, before the Egyptians, there there are many examples where blue simply doesn't show up in usage, but also in explanation. And what it leads into is this idea that our stories and our patterns and our concepts that we hold totally change what we can taste, smell, hear, and perceive. Oh, mate, this is this is really meta. Like I, yeah, I really, I didn't expect you to do this to me, but now I'm like, is yellow blue, or why is blue blue, or why is green not green? Can ah. I can I can I blow your mind a little bit? Yeah, go. Do I Come have on permission? Now. I, oh, I don't know, man. I think I'm gonna die. <laughs> go on. So it's even to the point where, as cognitive neuroscientist Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath recently mentioned, that if you have a specific pattern in your brain for how an animal or thing should look, the neurons in the back of your eye behind your retina will rearrange and rearrange the shape in your brain to match what it thinks it should be. Yeah, wow. You can just convincing people, hey, it's like, <laughs> hey, this is this is an orange table. I swear this is an orange table. You're wrong. It's an orange table. It's like that moment where someone absolutely is so hellfire bent on being certain that this is exactly how it looks. You know, they'll describe maybe it's a room or, you know, maybe it's like your family home from when you're young. You're like, no, there was definitely a fireplace in the middle of the room. I can see it so clearly. Oh. And the reality is it was never there. It was never there. We made, made it, it up. So much we for eyewitness testimonies. Oh, hey? <laughs> don't even get started on that eyewitness <laughs> testimonies. There's a reason they got throughout. There is a reason for that. But it, leans into this fact that our top-down processing, which is the processing that comes from our prefrontal cortex, the neocortex, and the related cortices in our brain, really dictates how our sensory cortexes, cortices interpret inputs. And what that basically means is your thinking part of your brain, which creates these predictions alongside your, your memory part of your brain, hippocampus, and the emotional processor, amygdala, actually changes what you smell, touch, feel, hear, all these different sensory inputs. And it changes them based on the predictions you have, which are created from your past experiences and your events, aka your stories, which is, it's pretty crazy, right? It's pretty crazy to think that the stories we have in our brain and these patterns we have can change the way that we physically perceive the world around us. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I'm getting really into like, remember what we studied at school? It was like, who's reality? 
It's like oh. you're <laughs> it's reminding me of like the Truman Show, um, yeah. and and everything that came with it. But it's it's such a good point. It's like really understanding what are the stories that you're telling yourself. Um, and again, it's you're trying to be as closely aligned with reality as it is, not as you wish or want it to be, but knowing that our map of reality, right? is probably not even close to it. Like I remember seeing this this uh, thing, right, which is like the electromagnetic yep. spectrum is all we can see, but then you've got a whole wavelength of light. So we only see one sliver of something that is like one to the power of like te- 10 to the power of four, five, six different wavelengths. So go figure. Have, have you ever seen those uh, like images of or the videos of what a praying mantis can see or a lobster nah, shrimp? Ah, that's sick. And, I, I'm going to look that up. all the colors, that's nah, crazy. That. Like the whole world is just in all these different – um, colors and, and chromes, which is kind of an imagine. Oh, I want to really know what a dog cool. sees. Yeah. I, I want to be able <laughs> to experience that for a day. Can you imagine? <laughs> I want to know what a dog smells. Actually, no, I, I retract that. Nah, I think nah, no, you don't. No, you don't. Instantly be unattracted to <laughs> everyone in your life. Or alternatively, be very attracted, which is the problem. <laughs> Ooh, that could be worse. Oh, this, is, uh, this is some serious thoughts. Um, Goddamn. And for but, you, mate, I was going to say, like, take this together. How are you applying this in your life? Well, this was revelatory to me uh, because it reminded me just how important challenging your own stories are, always. Um, So, for example, if you were experiencing something, we've talked about this with cognitive reappraisal or reframing. If you're experiencing something, you make it feel bad. If you challenge that story you have and change that story, you can actually change your physical senses. You can change the way you see, the the way you taste, the way you touch, the, the things you hear. Um, because of that top-down processing from the brain. But more importantly, you could change the way you react. And this is how you know like a lot of therapies actually work. You think of something like CBT, for example, what they're doing is they go back and accessing an old story and then bringing it up in a new context and reframing the way the patient looks at it or helping you know adjust that story and then putting it back into the brain. Um, so the way I'm using this is, is simply like challenging myself whenever I have a story, especially a story about self-doubt about a situation, because realizing that that story that you have inside, that internal narrative is going to drive, you know, how you perceive the world and how you feel um, by simply asking, you know, like, all right, what's my story right now? Is this true? Is this false? What's another story? That's how I'm using it. Yeah, I like that. I think it's like you're answering that question, like, how do I know this is true? Like yep. you obviously don't want to do that all about reality, right? You don't want to be going around being like, wow, how do I know this is black? How do I know this is blue? That's not very, very productive. Might be a little, but- <laughs> little too meta. But I think your point is so astute, which is we do tell ourselves a lot of stories and the stories um, you know, are fed to us that we don't even realize that we're absorbing these a lot of times, like not to talk too much about primal wounds and all that sort of stuff. But I think, um, yeah, really getting in touch with what is actually true and gathering evidence that either supports or goes against that is the ultimate red teaming of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Like red team your stories, red team your perception, red team the way you perceive the world and and the things that might be making you feel bad. Like so that's- I, Mate, I want to summarize this, but I'm just like my main takeaway is blue didn't exist until the Egyptians did. <laughs> yeah. So like- I think that's the big point. If you take anything away from this, it's it's the blue concept. It's, it's the absolute blue concept. But I will say, I think as you, you spoke about massively, which is just be mindful of the stories that you tell yourself um, because that becomes inevitably your reality. So be really clear on what those stories are, if they're true or if they're false and what is beneficial and what is not beneficial for your yeah. life. 
and practice challenging those stories. Absolutely. So speaking of stories, what's your story for this week? What'd you learn? I shopped. I shopped a fair you bit. Shopped. Ooh, <laughs> so mate, spent I, some money. I don't know if you know this. I'm not I'm not a massive shopper normally, oh, right? But I, I, can see I went on a bit of a shopping free as ever since I've got into golf. Like, oh my word, I bought oh, so God. much golf stuff. It felt so good. It was so easy. And I looked at my bill, I was like, what the insert profanity? How on earth did I spend this much money? And you know how I am. I literally went down the rabbit hole. I was like, literally, why do I spend so much money? And one thing popped up and it was literally called the cashless effect. And it basically says that we are more willing to pay when there is no physical money involved. And it was coined by a person called Elizabeth Hirschman in 1979. And it's potentially one of the reasons that in as of 2019, the USA is in $14 trillion of debt ever since. And if you look at the insert of when the actual cashless payments came in, we are actually spending more than we ever have before. That is a function, obviously, because we are richer, but proportional to salary as well. And that is dangerous when we live in such a cashless society. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. How I know a little bit about how this works, but from what you learn, how did you find it works? What's yeah. The, so the, like, the I think as we speak about there's a few confounding factors that come into it. Mm. I think the first one is a thing that was coined pain of payment. Yep. Right? We don't have that pain of payment because it isn't tangible. It feels invisible. Like if I can wave the card at you and say, boom, or I have a credit card details that are already auto-loaded by Google Chrome, then it's fine. <laughs> hey, Fresto, it feels like it's I'm borrowing, like I'm literally using someone else's money. I think the other aspect of it is harder for us to quantify. You know, we talk about a prefrontal cortex being responsible for doing calculations um, and working on, you know, problem solving. You know, the size of a credit card versus the size of counting cash. You don't actually go through the cognitive steps or calculations as you normally would if you had, say, a $1,000 bill, $1 bills in your pocket. Yeah. Um, the other two just to bring in to confound and get your thoughts is short-term focus, immediate self-gratification. We've spoken about that a lot, the hedonic treadmill, and you know it's easier to spend, right? There's less friction um, between totally. these. So those are, those are the main reasons. Anything that resonates? Like all of the above. <laughs> I feel like I just took a, a micro behavior economics course. It's it's almost as if because it's not real, it doesn't make you feel. And so as a result, you buy more, which leans on those things like the pain of buying uh, you mentioned is a huge thing. And also the, the cognitive ease of just being able to click a button and pay for something. That's dangerous. That's, it, that's, it, that's dangerous. It's so true. It brings into question a lot of things because, like, you know, we've looked at the recent acquisition, for those that don't know, of Afterpay oh, yeah. by Square for yeah. what, $39 billion, which allows you to pay afterwards, like a bit of a lay-by. But it's validated by a person called Dilip Soman from the University of Toronto, and she basically found consumers spend more money if the mechanism is less transparent. And their example that they went through was prepaid laundry cards versus paying at the machine. If you had to physically put and insert the coins into the machine, go through the process, you were less likely to spend more. And that when prepaid laundry cards, when you loaded 10, 20 bucks, it was a different kettle of fish altogether. Wow. That's a really cool study and example. And also a massive indictment on the optimization for revenue by defrictioning the payment processing. And you can see that across all, you know, all the payment startups, all the fintech startups. <laughs> They're all talking about, you know, one click payment. We've turned into a socialist podcast overnight. <laughs> oh my God, I know. Who are we? But I'm, I guess the concern I have for it is often it's targeting the people who are most vulnerable or, or least, less skeptical of this lack of friction in these processes. It's so really if you're one of those people, if you're, Pro- probably not if you're listening to this maybe quite quite well educated we like to think um how do you use this in real life 
Yeah, I think a quote that's resonated with me when I was going through this, like I genuinely really dissected this after because I like loved all the stuff that I bought. Loved the I was like, hole. you idiot. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and I found this in one of Dave Perel's newsletters. So big shout yeah. out to him. Very good writer. He said, um, you have free will to design your environment, but once in it, you no longer have free will. Mm. And I think that's a really astute point. We've talk, talked about habits on previous episodes, I think episode four, um, of the Brain Tools podcast, so check that out. But I think it's key steps of how can you actually create friction to not spend lots and actually create less friction to save or actually put your money in really good places. So I did this recently actually over the weekend, and this was a big thing uh, that I actually finally did, was actually automating all your payments. So designate a percentage once, say, your salary comes in or whatever it might be to savings, to your splurge account, um, to stocks. If you're into crypto, it goes directly to crypto, but automate it. The beautiful part about or the the flip side of this beautiful um, technology that we have is that you can automate a bunch of stuff. So doing it that. I think the other one is making it impossible, such very hard to get your money from savings. Um, and mm-hmm. you can definitely do that. Yeah. You can put stuff into it. Um, there's a lot of savers accounts that help. Lowering your credit limit to match your monthly budget. Like if you are sitting there being like, just keep raising and raising your credit limit, you have more and more money that you think is yours to spend, but it's not yours. <laughs> it's the, the banks. Um, and I think the other one is getting rid of credit, credit card numbers. Like don't have them stored in your computer. It might seem like it's really annoying to do that. But if you do feel like you're spending a little bit more, removing it, the ability for you to having to enter in all the details means you have more time to think about what you're spending, which means you're less likely to actually do it. Mm, so really just reintroducing some friction and then also setting up an environment where you're less likely to spend. Hundy P. Hundy P. You I, I like that. So for context, my partner, Samu, um, she basically allocates a massive proportion of her monthly salary that goes straight into her savings where she can't take any money out. And that's her way of preventing herself from overshopping. Yeah, I think it's such a good call as well. And that's that it's that automated part as well. Cause like you don't even you don't consciously have to do it. It's like it's gone. You look at your account like, oh wow, it's the same with like paying rent, paying all those yeah. different things. So yeah, taking advantage of it. I like it. So avoiding the the impact of the cashless effect, which increases our propensity to spend by making it so much easier to do that, r- removing that pain of buying, which we know is actually the same sensation uh, of pain in the in the brain as physical pain if you scan the brains, um, and also making it you know harder for us to quantify and, and really feel the impact of that purchase, and countering that by having these automated systems where percentages of your income is already split into the buckets you need it split into. Uh, for your budget, uh, making it really, really hard to to get your money from savings if you're one of those people who do splits it. And then also just creating up, creating friction points so that you're less likely to hit add to cart, pay with Apple Pay instantly on your phone when you see that Instagram ad and instead you actually stop and consider it. Absolutely nailed it. And that brings us to the close of Brain Bites 11. If you are loving the podcast, you're loving Brain Bites, you're loving Brain Tools, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google, you name it, you can do it. Um, And if you're feeling really generous, you know, very generous, not cashless effects vibes, but just generous, then you can give us a five-star rating. It'd be muchos apreciatos, or you can follow us on all the socials. Samuel, anything else I can do? Uh, I would say from a... A defriction perspective, it's as easy as tapping add to cart to go to one of our social accounts and give us a cheeky follow there. And you know what? We post more content in different formats. So if you actually want to see this beautiful visage behind this hideous voice, give us a follow. <laughs> Don't be so harsh on yourself. You're beautiful. 
Self-deprecating. James Blunt. Oh, so, so sweet. And uh, that's all we've got for this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Brain Bites and we'll uh, see you on the next episode.